when we have cysts and on our ovaries on or anywhere else in this area what can they usually be so yeah so every time you ovulate you form a cyst right so eggs live inside a follicle which essentially can become a cyst so a typical cyst is just fluid uh, it's like a fluid filled cyst it's a simple cyst and so really there's nothing to be concerned about but things like dermoids is a type of cyst and that is a really uh, unusual cyst they i've never heard that term dermoids, dermoids. Periods. What can they do to minimize the pain or, I mean, eliminate it completely? 
So you really have to figure out what's causing the pain, right? So if we can figure out what's causing the pain, then we can help alleviate it. And in some women, it's going to be things like endometriosis. It's going to be fibroids. And then in certain women, we don't even know what's causing it. And so that is, we, we call it dysmenorrhea without a cause, essentially. And so then you're going to have to look at things like, do you take birth control pills? Do you take Motrin, things like that to help alleviate that pain and the heavy periods. Some women are prescribed birth control to kind of control their periods, to minimize the pain. And then a lot of people say, I don't want to have any kind of hormones in my body. I'm completely against birth control. And that's really interesting for me that sometimes when I even speak on my channel about like me being on birth control, I have a lot of people coming to me and they're like, that's horrible for your body. Like you shouldn't use birth control. Can you talk a little bit about birth control and why you should or shouldn't use it? So I think it's a real personal choice, right? And so it really needs to be what the woman wants. It has to be in consultation with her physician. And there's no right or wrong answer to this. It's really personal and it needs to be. So nobody should judge anybody if they choose to go on birth control or if they don't choose to go on birth control. And there's some really great benefits of birth control. So it, it helps prevent ovarian cancer, actually. It can help prevent uterine cancer. It can make your periods really light. It can make them regular so you know when they're coming. So it has a lot of benefits. And then some women, they don't, like you said, they don't want anything to do with birth control. And that's 100% their choice. And so if they're having issues with heavy periods or painful periods, then as a physician, you have to work around their choices. So if they don't want to go on birth control, you're going to do things a little bit different than if they do want to go on birth control. But to answer your question, I think it's a personal choice that every woman needs to make for themselves in consultation with their physician. When we're talking about the birth control, can you walk us through different types? And when would you suggest what type for depending like what stage of your life you're in? Yeah, absolutely. So birth control pills are typically contain both estrogen and progesterone. There is a progesterone only pill, and that's going to be prescribed to women who can't take estrogen. So women who are prone to blood clotting issues or other medical conditions, women who are breastfeeding are going to take a progesterone-only pill. But the most common is the estrogen and progesterone combined pill. And that's really good to just basic birth control that you start a woman, you know, a teenager on, anybody who's really first starting birth control. That would be something really good to go to just to see how their body responds to it, see how they like it. The IUD is an excellent form of birth control. There are several. There's the Mirena, there's the Kylina, the Liletta, the Skyla. Those have progesterone in them. The IUD is perfect for a woman who doesn't want to take a pill every day. She just wants to go through a procedure to place the IUD and then forget about it. They range anywhere from three to eight years, depending on which one you choose. And so that is a really good option. A lot of women that are in medical school or in law school or just a woman who's really busy. Um, and then a woman who does not want hormones whatsoever, but still wants an IUD, there's the Paragard IUD. So that is good for 10 years. It works a little bit differently than the uh, progesterone IUDs. And that's good if you don't want any kind of hormones in your body. And then there's estrogen and progesterone vaginal rings. There's a progesterone implant that you put in your arm. There's progesterone shots. So there is a whole range of birth control. There's also condoms. There's what's called Fexi gel that you can use as well that's non-hormonal. So there's so many different types of birth control that you really need to have a really long conversation with your doctor to figure out which one's going to be the best for you. I'm going to share my birth control journey. I had I was using pills a long time ago and then I just in my 20s I always forgot to take one then I was my periods were all over the place and then I went to the doctor and I asked like what's the best solution for me and they told me an IUD. I put my IUD in. It was extremely painful that day, but later it was the best thing for me honestly and I didn't get my period at all. So when I was when I shared that to my friends, they're like, whoa, that's not normal. Why? That's crazy. That's insane. Can you talk a little bit about why don't we get our periods if we're on an IUD? 
Yeah, so it's really, really, really common on the Mirena or the progesterone-only IUD to not get a period. So how this works is it does not prevent ovulation. What it does is it makes the lining of your uterus really, really thin. And like I was saying before, the menstrual cycle is because that lining has to shed off every month. Well, if you have an IUD and your lining's thin, there's nothing to shed off. So you're not going to get, a, or the majority of women don't get a period or a very, very, very light period on the Mirena or the progesterone-only IUD, simply because how it was designed. That's how it prevents the egg from, and the embryo, excuse me, the embryo from implanting, is it makes your cervical mucus a little bit thick, and it makes that lining really, really thin. With a thin lining, there's nothing to shed off. So it's not unusual, it's not uncommon, it's not harming your body at all to have no period with the progesterone-only IUD or a very, very, very light period. So if somebody does have an IUD and they faced the same type of reactions when they tell their friends, oh, I don't get my period, is there what can they say to those friends? Not that they need to explain themselves at all, but what can they say to those friends in simple terms, like why don't you bleed when you are on an IUD? So I would just simply say it's because the IUD makes the lining of my uterus really thin and there's nothing to bleed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's honestly yeah. the simplest thing you can say um, is that you're just not building up that lining to shed mm-hmm. off every month. Question about pregnancy while on birth control. When does it happen? How common is it? Are there any consequences or any negative experiences when it comes? Because I, when I was putting my, when I put my IUD in, the first thing they told me, if you get, I mean, not the doctors, but they're like, if you get pregnant, you can die. Oh, I was like, okay, that's not, because they're like, oh, your baby's going to start, you know, a lot of people say a lot of things, yeah. but that's yeah. why we have you here to clarify. <laughs> so pregnancy on an implantable hormone, such as the Nexplanon, which goes in your arm or the IUD is super, super, super rare because it takes out human error, right? So if you put a Nexplanon in your arm, you don't have to remember to take that every day. An IUD, you just put it in, you don't have to do anything. So really the birth control, um, Women who get pregnant on birth control, it's usually typically on condoms. That's pretty common. And it's really um, error with how you put on a condom, how you use it. You're not using it every time. With birth control, with oral, the combination birth control pill, it's typically because you forget a dose or, you know, you, you thought you took it, but you didn't. So typically it's because you forget a pill or you take a pill too late the progesterone-only birth control pill has to be taken at the same time every single day. So it's a really hard birth control to remember because you have to set a clock. You have to really literally take it every, you know, it's, it's good for 24 hours. If you don't take it within that 24 hours, then you actually could ovulate. And then some women, I've had stories, women take it completely correctly. They take it every day. They do it like they're supposed to, and they still get pregnant. We don't really know why. Nothing's 100%. And so there's cases that that happens. Now, if you're on a combined birth control pill, typically there's nothing that's going to happen to the pregnancy. You'll find out you're pregnant. You stop the pill. Usually everything's fine. With the IUD, typically we leave the IUD in place and you go on with the pregnancy. So it's not the end of the world if you get pregnant on these birth control methods. So let's say if somebody has an IUD and they get pregnant what should they do? So you definitely need to go to your physician and then they're going to decide if it's, you put the IUD in and right away you're like four weeks pregnant, you get a positive pregnancy test. Sometimes the physician will take out the IUD, but if you're further along, then typically they leave the IUD in place and it doesn't usually affect the pregnancy. So they can carry totally normal. Yep. Okay. And that's interesting. Uh, when it comes to birth control pills there are the regular pills and they're like placebo pills why do we have the placebo pills so the placebo pills and you don't really need a placebo pill you can essentially start a new pack take you know you can take it continuously we do the placebo pills just so your body has a period because when birth control pills were introduced 
they thought women would accept them more readily if they still get a period. Because we're taught all our life, we have to have a period every single month. This is normal. This is how our body works. So the placebo pills were put in there for a woman to have a period so that she thinks everything is normal, essentially. Interesting. Yeah, but you don't need that placebo. You don't even need to take the placebos. You can take continuous birth control. There's no reason for that week to be there. Mm-hmm. And let's say this is a personal situation that I need help with. I yeah. when I started my pack, my 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 pack, my pill pill pack, I don't know how to call it. Yeah. When I started taking my pills now, I started taking them at 9:45 p.m. Okay. Sometimes I'm already sleeping at that time. So I like wake up in the middle of the night and I take my pill and I'm just like, okay, this is I need to switch my time. So how do I switch my time? Yeah, so what you do if you want to start taking it in the morning or in the night, just switch it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be, especially if you're on a combined pill, so estrogen and progesterone, you don't have to be so strict about that as you do with the progesterone only. If you're going to switch your progesterone only, I would switch it, but then use backup protection, meaning mm-hmm. a condom for you know that month. Um, but if you want to switch the combined pill, it's totally fine to take it, you know, at nine o'clock at night and then the next day take it at nine in the morning and then just continue it like that. That's totally fine. So I can take my pill tomorrow, 9 a.m. and just continue with a 9 a.m. Okay, Absolutely. love that. I was literally talking to my mom this afternoon about it. I'm like, I don't know what time I, I need to fix this. Uh, when it comes to birth control and let's say I have an IUD and I take it out right now, how fast can a woman get pregnant usually? The next month. So if it's so if it's a Mirena IUD, it doesn't affect typically it doesn't affect ovulation. So you take out or let's not even say a Mirena, a progesterone IUD. You take that out, you're still ovulating, so you can get pregnant the next month. We like to give it a couple of cycles because as I said, it works because the lining makes the lining very thin. We like that lining to build up because that you need that thick lining for implantation. So if you took the Mirena out, you know, this month. I usually tell my patients to wait at least one or two cycles and then go ahead and try to conceive. What about other types of birth control? How fast can somebody get pregnant after they stop taking the pill? The next month, mm-hmm. like right away. I mean, with, if it's something in, in, with typical birth control. So if it's something like the combined pill, if it's a progesterone only pill, if it's an IUD, the the method that can take a little bit of time for you to start ovulating is the Depo-Provera shot and also the Nexplanon, um, which is a progesterone-only rod that you put in your arm. So the Depo-Provera shot and the Nexplanon can actually take a little bit of time before you start developing ovulatory cycles. So we say it can take anywhere from like two to six months for you to start ovulating again on those types of birth control methods. Speaking of ovulating, what happens in our bodies when we're ovulating? So ovulation is basically an egg being released. That is ovulation. So what you have is what's called the LH surge. And so when you're doing the ovulation test strips, you see all that. Sometimes on movies and things, you're like, oh, I have to check my strips. And so Mm -hmm. what you're checking for is this LH surge. So what happens is the LH in your body peaks and it gets very high. Then when that peak crashes down, it goes down, that's what causes you to ovulate. So you have the LH surge, which the test strips detect, and then typically you're going to ovulate within 24 to 48 hours of that surge. And so that's why they say once you get that surge, then you start having intercourse for pregnancy. So ovulation is simply the egg being released from the ovary. Mm -hmm. And when people, we're going to skip to pregnancy now. Okay. When people are trying to get pregnant, Something I've seen in movies is like they're trying all these different positions. It's like you have to do it this way for the egg to go straight. Is that true or is it all just mumbo jumbo? Yeah, it's all just mumbo jumbo. I mean, our bodies are really pretty amazing. And so you don't have to like have intercourse and then stand on your head for the sperm. Mm, Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that a lot. Yeah, no, the sperm swim. And so they're going to find where they need to go. And so mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about doing any kind of weird positions or anything like that. Okay. I don't know much about pregnancy since I am not pregnant. So I didn't really inform myself much. 
talk to us about pregnancy. How does, is it also, it's interesting how when we were younger, when we were like in our, when we were in our teenage years, people were always scaring us. Oh, make sure you use protection. It's so hard. Like you're going to say, like you're going to get pregnant. And now so many people are having so many difficulties with their pregnancies. Yeah. Why would they, were they scaring us just for, you know, just keen to keep us safe or, I mean. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you hear about the worst case scenarios, right? So I think a lot of women are waiting to become pregnant. So they're trying after age 35, age 40. And so you're going to hear the worst case scenarios of, oh, you need to get pregnant, you know, right away. Um, so women that as they age, they have a little bit harder time getting pregnant, um, but it takes the average couple around five months to actually get pregnant. And so I think, like you said, you've been all of your life trying to prevent pregnancy. And then when you want to get pregnant, it seems like it takes forever. But mm-hmm. average is about five months. So it does take, and that's everything being perfect. Nothing, you know, nothing um, going on with the male, male or the female. So I think you just kind of hear the worst case scenarios and then everybody gets really concerned about, oh, I'm never going to get pregnant or everybody's having problems getting pregnant. Why do women have morning sickness in the first, let's say, three months, I would say? Yeah, a lot of times it can last even longer than that. It's because the pregnancy hormones are so high. So the estrogen is really, really high and that causes a lot of morning sickness, um, the nausea, the vomiting. There's a condition called hyperemesis, which is horrible, where you throw up all the time. And it's really a hormonal issue. Your body's not used to those high dose of hormones, and that's what's maintaining the pregnancy. And so that's typically why women get pregnant, or excuse me, get morning sickness within those first three months of pregnancy. Is there something they can do to not be so nauseous? Or if somebody is pregnant and nauseous, what can they do instantly to make themselves feel better? So B6, vitamin B6 is a really good anti-nausea vitamin. Unisom, believe it or not, the sleep aid Unisom helps a lot. Small little tiny meals help, like the whole you need to eat soda crackers. Well, there's something to that. So you have something in your body at all times, um, but really small tiny meals. Um, ginger actually helps and try not to get dehydrated because you're not going to feel like drinking. You're not going to feel like you know, eating, but if you can keep well hydrated, um, simple things like B6, ginger, and Unisom are actually really beneficial for morning sickness. Why would you say that some women, and I know it's a very general question, but why do some women have a harder pregnancy and then some have a super easy pregnancy? Also, my mom told me, I have a brother, he's older, and she said that with me, it was so much easier. Does that mean that our body kind of got used to it or you know what's going to happen? Or why do some people have a harder pregnancy? Yeah, it's really hard to say because my pregnancy personally was horrible. That's why I have one child. <laughs> like it was, it was <laughs> awful. But my mom had six kids. And so and she and some women feel better when they're pregnant and some women just feel horrible. So I think it has to do kind of with your body makeup. Um, if you're older, sometimes that's a little bit harder on your body. Um, and some women, they do. They just sail right through it. And some women have to be bedridden. So, well, yeah. When when do you need to be on bed rest? Obviously, you need to see your physician. They're going to tell you when you need to like relax. But what would you say in general is the main cause? Yeah. So we used to, in the olden days, tell people that have high blood pressure and are bleeding and all of these other complications to be on bed rest. But the Society of Maternal Field Medicine actually just revised the criteria. And so they're not telling people to be on bed rest. So studies have shown that bed rest doesn't do very much, but make you uncomfortable, um, make you deconditioned. So you're just laying there. So a lot of times though, if you have really high blood pressure, you're going to be told not to exercise, to take it easy. Um, if you're having a lot of bleeding when you're walking around, we're going to tell you to take it easy. But bed rest in and of itself is not as prescribed as it once was. Why, would, why do women bleed while pregnant? Is that common? No, it's not common. And typically it can be a placental issue. So if they have what's called placenta previa, where the placenta covers the cervix, then you can bleed if you have what's called a placental abruption or a chronic abruption where the placenta actually 
for lack of a better word, kind of tears off of the uterus, you can have bleeding. Sometimes intercourse, you will have bleeding just because your cervix is what we call a little bit more friable because of the hormones. So that can cause bleeding. It's very common in the very beginning of pregnancy with implantation to have bleeding. And also where the uh, embryo implants into the uterus, that can cause what's called a subchorionic hematoma or hemorrhage, and that can cause bleeding. So there's all kinds of causes for bleeding. And so that's why it's really important if you have that to get you to your doctor right away. Mm -hmm. What about when you get a miscarriage? Why would that happen? And is there something we can do to prevent it or kind of keep the pregnancy safe? So yeah, the most common cause of miscarriage is a chromosomal issue. So just the wrong chromosomes are together. Um, and so that's the number one cause. If you have more than two or three miscarriages, then you're gonna, your doctor's going to start doing blood tests. So we're going to check you for any kind of what's called um, a thrombophilia. So anti-cardiolipin, anti-phospholipid antibody, we're going to check you for those things. And then if you're positive for those things, we're going to recommend things like aspirin and heparin, a blood thinner, to help you. We're also, we would also do um, an analysis of the miscarriage itself to see if this is a chromosomal issue. We'll check you and your partner to make sure that you don't have a chromosomal issue. So really, if you have two miscarriages, two or three, but we're starting to test more at two, you're going to have a whole bunch of tests to see why you're having miscarriages. But typically, you'll have a miscarriage and your next pregnancy will be completely normal. When it comes to food and drinks during pregnancy, I heard that you are not allowed to eat sushi. Is that true or false? So you're, you should not eat anything that's raw because of toxoplasmosis, because of parasites that can be in the sushi. I mean, sushi obviously is raw. Um, if you want to eat California rolls, which really aren't sushi, <laughs> then Pre go sushi, for pretend it. sushi. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, so we don't want you eating any kind of raw fish. We don't want you eating soft cheeses because that can um, cause what's called listeriosis. Uh, we don't want you to eat any kind of big fish. So like um, swordfish, tilefish because of the mercury, or we want you to limit that. Um, mm -hmm. Canned tuna is fine, but any kind of big fish, we don't want you to be eating that because of mercury. Um, so really it's like soft cheeses, big fish, sushi, things like that. And that's the only food that we should avoid or is there anything else? You know, obviously, we're going to say no alcohol, mm -hmm. pregnancy. Um, yeah, I mean, those are really the foods. And again, you can have canned tuna if you want to have small, soft cheese. No, absolutely not. But yeah, I mean, those are really the big foods to avoid. Some people say, oh, you can have a glass of wine here and there. Is that okay? Or I mean, yeah. what, would, what would happen? Okay, what would happen if somebody doesn't know they're pregnant? and they got drunk they're smoking cigarettes they're just yeah. like i don't know on a rampage yeah what's what's gonna happen with their unborn baby or i mean i, I don't know what's politically correct nowadays so no, no, no. <laughs> yeah so probably nothing's gonna happen right because i mean in the 60s i think most like my husband's mother smoked and drank her entire pregnancy wow. nothing happened and so really probably if you if you don't know you're pregnant in the first four weeks and you're drinking smoking probably nothing's going to happen it's an all or none thing meaning that it's either going to it's not going to really cause a miscarriage but you're going to think it did um mm -hmm. so it's either that or nothing happens at all but when you get into issues is when you're smoking every single day because that can have problems with um, the baby's weight with your placenta so that's going to be issue having issues if you're drinking every single day it can cause fetal alcohol syndrome which is a huge issue so if it's, you know, the first, you know, a couple drinks, that's completely fine. Um, you'll go to some um, obstetricians and they'll say, yeah, you can have a glass of wine once in a while. Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of at the point where I think women tend to blame themselves for things. And so if they had a glass of wine and something happened, they're going to be like, oh, my gosh, I did mm -hmm. this. Yeah. And likely you didn't. But so I just uh, advise all my patients to not drink alcohol. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about something very controversial nowadays, which are abortions. Yeah. 
I absolutely think that every woman has the right for their own choice. If you want to get an abortion, get it. Like, I, I don't understand. I, I'm not even going to go into any politics right now. It's just, I, I'm not going to get into it. But if somebody does want to get an abortion, how does that happen? What, what, is, what happens in her body? Is it scary? Does it hurt? Talk to us a little bit about abortions. Yeah, so the earlier, the better. Right. And so before 12 weeks is going to be the best time to get an abortion. Um, some women don't find out they're pregnant and their periods are irregular until, you know, 13, 14 weeks. So if you're pregnant and you're, you don't want to have the baby, then you need to go see your physician right away. Because the earlier, the better. You can do a medical abortion. Um, you can choose to do a DNC. Um, after 12 weeks, then it gets a little bit trickier. What is a DNC? So dilation and curatage is when you actually go into the operating room or if it's Planned Parenthood into their clinic and they'll actually typically put you to sleep. So you're not going to feel anything. And then they dilate your cervix and then they just remove the pregnancy. Essentially, it takes literally three minutes. It's a really quick process. Um, they'll take you to the recovery room, you recover there, and then you'll go home uh, the same day. So yeah, go ahead. Sorry. And then what happens when, when they get home? Are they going to be bleeding? Are they going to be experiencing any kind of pain, nausea? So yeah, you definitely you're going to bleed. Um, some women bleed a little bit, some women bleed a little bit more. But yeah, you can definitely bleed up, you know, to a week and you're going to experience things like with your period. So they'll definitely be cramping, there'll be pain. Obviously, it's going to be an emotional time because no woman is going to go into this with like, oh, it's, I'm getting an abortion. Mm -hmm. This is a mental issue, definitely. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be sad. Um, so you're going to go through all of those things. So it's going to be like a really heavy period, typically, after the DNC procedure. Mm -hmm. When it comes to plan B, is that effective? Yeah, it's effective if you take it before ovulation. So if you take it within 72 hours of the unprotected intercourse and you take it before ovulation, then it's very, very effective. Um, there's another uh, medication called Ella, which is a prescription, and that you can actually take five days. Um, so it's mm -hmm. another pill, but you take that five days within uh, when you've had intercourse, and that's very effective throughout the whole entire cycle. You can also go in and get an IUD placed, a copper mm -hmm. IUD placed, and that's also very effective for preventing pregnancy. But yeah, plan B, mm -hmm. very effective. Ella, you can do it beyond the 72 hours, very effective. What else can you share about pregnancies that you think women should know nowadays, maybe if they're about to get pregnant or they want to get pregnant? What about pre prenatal vitamins? Are they effective? Yeah. Yeah, prenatal vitamins are awesome. They're going to have DHA in them. And so that's going to be very beneficial for the baby's brain and eye development. So you really want to take that before you get pregnant. Also, folic acid is really important for the neural tube of the baby. So you want that to be in your body as well. So if you're even considering getting pregnant, I would definitely start on a prenatal vitamin um, with folic acid, which is going to be in the prenatal um, before you start. So Yeah, absolutely. They're very beneficial, very effective. They have iron in them, which is going to be important for as you progress throughout your pregnancy. So I would do that if you're even contemplating it as soon as possible. When somebody is about to get pregnant or they want to get pregnant and they come to your office or they speak to you, is there any questions they usually ask Or what are the most common questions about pregnancies? As some of you may know, a few months ago, I accidentally discovered a cyst on my ovary and I had to get it surgically removed. Now more than ever, I'm really staying on top of my health. And I don't mean just trying to eat healthy and exercise. I'm adding supplements to my life to prevent any unnecessary health issues. My goal is to just stay happy and healthy. Speaking of happy, I'd love to introduce you to Happy V. Happy V is a wellness company committed to creating scientifically sound products and and educational content to help women lead healthier and more empowered lives. 
doctor-formulated vaginal probiotics that can help balance your vaginal pH if you experience bacterial vaginosis, yeast infections, UTIs, low immunity, gut or digestive issues, they got you covered. Happy V puts science and facts first, using clinically studied ingredients in their formulas, and they're here to build a stigma-free world and start an open dialogue about vaginal health. You can check out their products at happyv.com and use code HAPPYCOCO10 to get 10% off your order. Again, that's happyv, V as in vagina.com. Yeah, they want to know how to get pregnant the quickest. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially. Um, So that's when we have to look at their periods, look at see how regular they are, make sure they're ovulating. And then I can kind of sit down with them and say, okay, this is likely when you're ovulating, you need to have intercourse, you know, a couple days before. Mm -hmm. And so that's really, they really want to know um, Mm -hmm. how to get pregnant the quickest. And then pregnancy itself, it's, they're very nervous, especially if it's their first pregnancy. They're afraid something's going to go wrong. Um, they have a lot of questions because there's a lot of stuff out there on the internet, either mm-hmm. true or false. Um, so I just kind of go through all their questions. The first appointment, like the preconception appointment and the first pregnancy appointment is a really long appointment. Um, so we kind of go over expectations and what the pregnancy is going to look like for them. Uh, my next topic is very interesting. Uh, STDs. Okay. Let's talk about STDs. How okay, let's start with HPV. That is that an STD officially? It uh-huh. is, right? Absolutely, 100%. Okay, let's talk about HPV first. Tell me exact like simple language. What is it? Who can get it? Is it sexually transmitted? Men and women have it. Guys usually don't have symptoms as far as I'm aware. Yep. So yeah. So it's definitely a sexually transmitted um disease, infection. Um, and it is transmitted via intercourse. So 100%. It's a virus, the human papillomavirus, and HPV can cause um, warts, like the outside warts, but the kind we're talking about causes cervical cancer. And so that's what we're so concerned about. There is numerous types of HPV, but HPV 16, 18, 33, 36, those are the ones that are really linked to cervical cancer. So that's when you go in and get a pap smear, that's what we're checking for. We're checking for abnormal cells and HPV. Typically, if you have HPV, your body's going to clear it on its own. And Mm -hmm. there's really nothing you're going to do. We say, obviously, a healthy diet, exercise, vitamin C, anything to boost your immune system is going to help you clear it. But the majority of women clear this on their own. Men can 100% have HPV, be carriers of HPV, transmit HPV. Um, So it's both men and women that are affected by HPV. Okay, next next uh, STD, gonorrhea. What yeah. causes it? What are the symptoms and how do we treat it? So gonorrhea is actually has a big re- re- prevalence right now, actually. It's kind of everywhere. So it's a sexually transmitted disease infection, sexually transmitted infection as well, and it's treated with antibiotics. So the symptoms are usually a discharge. It can cause itching um, and you just feel uncomfortable. So itching, a discharge, and it's definitely sexually transmitted and we treat it with an antibiotic. And how does that antibiotic work? Is it one pill? Is it multiple pills? Yes. So typically what you will do, and it kind of gets a little bit tricky because you're going to check for gonorrhea and chlamydia. And so typically we're going to treat both of those things and it depends on who you go to. Some people will give you a shot and a pill. Some people will just give you a pill. So it really just depends on how your doctor is going to treat you. I treat with a shot and a pill. So what about chlamydia? What are the symptoms? Yeah. Let's just make this clear. All of these STDs are sexually transmitted. So you can't like get it from, I don't know, wet underwear or something like that. Because a lot of girls, you know, their partner tell them, their partner can be like, oh, I I didn't give you, like, that's not from me. But then he's kind of like going around. (laughs) Right. No, exactly. They're all sexually transmitted. Chlamydia Mm -hmm. is kind of the scary one. So there's usually no symptoms. And Mm -hmm. so you'll check for chlamydia on a pap smear. Um, so you'll go to your gynecologist on a pap smear, they check for chlamydia and it's positive. So mm-hmm. that's really the scary one because there's not a lot of symptoms with chlamydia. And it's treated with a pill, an antibiotic. 
Gonorrhea has a discharge. Chlamydia doesn't have any symptoms. Does HPV have any symptoms? No. Besides the warts. Well, right. the warts are typically the, yeah. So the warts are not the things you're concerned about. So the okay. warts are usually low risk HPV. High risk mm. HPV is going to be the ones that have no symptoms whatsoever. Okay. What about herpes? Herpes symptoms, 100%. So mm-hmm. herpes, typically you get a really painful ulceration and you can have what's called prodromal symptoms. So you'll get like a tingling or a burning and the herpes lesion comes at the exact same place every single time. So if you get it on your left labia, you're going to always get it on your left labia. The horrible thing with herpes is it doesn't go away. So Mm -hmm. it lives in the sensory nerves and it will come out during stress if you're sick um, and you're going to typically get it the same exact place. The Mm -hmm. first time you get herpes is usually the worst time. And so that can present with multiple lesions, um, really painful, horrible, and that is a virus. And so you're going to treat that with an antiviral. How do, well, what kind of antiviral? So you can do a cyclovir. There's different types of antivirals that you can take. Um, if you keep getting recurrent herpes outbreaks, you'll actually take suppression therapy where you'll be taking an antiviral every single day. And that helps what's called shedding. Because even if your partner doesn't have a lesion that you can see, they can still be shedding the herpes virus and still give it to you. Even Wait, if they say this have... again. If they don't have what? If they don't have uh, outbreaks? Yep, exactly. They don't have it. That's why herpes is so scary. So if you have a partner, I mean, that's why I recommend you get checked before you have intercourse with anybody and make mm-hmm. them show you their paper from their doctor mm-hmm. and look at the data to make sure it's their game <laughs> and everything. Um, and you know, it's not the most romantic thing, but yeah. it's really scary because once you get it, it's not going to go away. You're going to have it for the rest of your life. And the guy could be like, I don't have anything going on. So even if he doesn't have a lesion actively. He so a lesion still- is an outbreak. Yeah, an right. outbreak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So even if he doesn't have an outbreak, he could still be shedding the virus and you on could, you. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then you could still get it. Would you say that um, men have less symptoms than women or no. doesn't? Yeah. No, mm-hmm. no, it's, it's pretty much the same. Um, no, it's pretty much the same. Okay. Um, so herpes is the only one that is permanent. Well, then you have to talk about things like syphilis, which you get into. Okay, yes. Sorry, I forgot about that one. Okay, let's go. Let's talk, talk to me about syphilis. That one is so scary. I don't even like when I, yeah, let's let's talk about syphilis. So, yeah, so syphilis has a huge resurgence right now as well. So there's primary syphilis, secondary syphilis, tertiary syphilis. And so typically primary syphilis, it's just a outbreak for lack of a better word that's Mm -hmm. painless you can't even tell and so you'll go to your OBGYN and they may see something or you may feel something there but it doesn't hurt that's how you differentiate herpes from syphilis so Mm -hmm. um, syphilis doesn't hurt so you'll go the OBGYN will look at it they'll take either a sample of the uh, outbreak or they'll check your blood Um, syphilis is treated with an antibiotic penicillin. If Mm -hmm. it's a secondary syphilis, then that has, um, uh, symptoms. So you'll have a fever, you won't feel well. And so then your physician will test you for that. And then you go into things like tertiary syphilis and neurosyphilis, which can kind of stay in your body, latent syphilis and be around for a while, but typically that doesn't happen because you're going to go to the physician when you have the fevers, when you're not feeling well, they're going to check you for this and give you an antibiotic penicillin to get rid of the syphilis. Are we missing, we're missing HIV. That's another one. Is that right? Okay. Talk to me about HIV. So HIV again, um, used to be very, very common, but you're still seeing HIV. So That is a virus that is there forever. However, there have been recently five cases that people have actually gotten rid of the HIV. And so there's preventative therapy that you can actually take before 
intercourse if you're a high-risk group. So if you're a man that has sex with men, if you're a woman who has multiple sex partners, if you're a woman who is with a partner that has HIV. So there's preventative medication you can take before. Um, but yeah, HIV is another scary one that we say typically doesn't go away. So gonorrhea, chlamydia, HPV can go away with medication. Yes. And the other syphilis. Sorry, HPV can't go away with medication. HPV, your body clears it itself. Okay. And then herpes and syphilis and HIV, they're pretty much around forever. Syphilis, you can get rid of if you catch it in time. So, and Mm -hmm. typically you're going to. I I mean, Mm -hmm. I have never seen anyone with neurosyphilis ever in 25 Mm -hmm. years. And it's treated with penicillin. I mean, it's a simple, simple, simple treatment. You just, I mean, I think the the main thing is getting to your doctor to get diagnosed so you mm-hmm. can get treatment. When somebody wants to get a, a checkup for STDs, do they need to request every single disease or usually they just do everything? They do everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're going to definitely do everything. So we'll check you. If someone comes into my office and says, I want an STI check, then... I'm going to run everything on them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Next, we're going to talk about endometriosis, the reason why we actually connected in the first place. So (laughs) endometriosis is a very interesting uh, thing that I got diagnosed with a few months ago, and I had a surgery, and I'm also going to have an episode where I'm going to share my entire personal experience and how the surgery was for me and whatever was going on in my head. But let's talk about what is endometriosis and why does it happen? So yeah, endometriosis is basically where endometrial-like tissue grows outside of the uterus. So it's not endometrial tissue itself, but it's endometriosis-like tissue. So endometrial glands and stroma grow outside of the uterus. The most common places are the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, the intestines, the, uh, what we call the peritoneal lining that kind of covers your whole entire abdo- abdomen and pelvic area. And the sad thing is we don't know why it happens. So mm-hmm. the number one thing we think is what's called retrograde menstruation. And so your uh, menstrual flow obviously comes out your cervix and your vagina, but it can also go out of your fallopian tubes. And when it does that, it can implant different places inside your abdomen and pelvis. So we think it likely it's retrograde menstruation, but also there can be, we're thinking maybe uh, spread of the endometrial tissue via the blood vessels, via the lymphatics. And so the bottom line is we really don't know what causes it. What is the endometrial tissue exactly? So it's the actual endometrial glands. So you, what lines your uterus is the endometrial mm-hmm. tissue. So every time you have a period, that's what's shedding out mm-hmm. is that top layer of the endometrial tissue. So Mm -hmm. that the blood and the tissue Mm -hmm. that sheds out is actually going through, we think, through your fallopian tubes. And that endometrial-like tissue is implanting different places in your pelvis. Okay. And how does one get diagnosed with endometriosis? So the gold standard is surgery. So Mm -hmm. it's a laparoscopic surgery where a physician puts a little camera in your belly button and you actually have to see the endometrial lesions, take a biopsy of that and send it to the pathologist. And then the pathologist is going to say, yes, these are endometrial glands and that's the gold standard. Mm -hmm. So in my story, I had a giant cyst on my ovary and I didn't have any symptoms and it was nine centimeters times seven so it was pretty large it was like an orange for those who don't understand centimeters uh everybody was really confused myself included that i didn't have any symptoms why do some women have symptoms and some have no symptoms at all yeah so endometriosis is really curious in that way so women with we stage endometriosis stage one through stage four so stage three and four is what we would consider very significant endometriosis where we go in and there's a lot of adhesions there's big endometrial implants there's a huge 9.7 centimeter cyst Um, so we would stage that as a stage three or four and then a stage one or two is just 
mild implants, you know, two or three implants. We go in, everything looks pretty good. What's curious is the women with stage one and two endometriosis a lot of times have a lot more significant pain than the women with stage three and four endometriosis. And we really can't explain it. We think maybe because, well, they've been living with it so long, so it's kind of normal for them. Mm -hmm. Um, Or things are so scarred down that they're just not experiencing the pain that more mild endometriosis presents with. If somebody, we mentioned the only way to actually get diagnosed is with surgery. But if somebody wants to do any kind of preventative things. For me specifically, I went for a regular gynecologist checkup and she did an ultrasound. And that's when she saw the mass. And that's when I started going to more doctors and more doctors eventually got my surgery. Would you say ultrasound is the best way to kind of detect any cysts or what can somebody do today? Because when I shared my story, a lot of girls were telling me, oh my God, thank you for telling me I had some weird pain down there. I didn't really know what's going on. I thought it was nothing because a lot of us just brush it in and they're like, oh, it's fine. Like, don't worry. I'm not going to worry about it. Yeah. So what can they do today? Yeah. So endometriomas are basically is what you had, a cyst with endometrial fluid. So that hundred percent can be diagnosed on an ultrasound. It's a little bit hard for you because you had no symptoms whatsoever. So mm-hmm. typically someone, a woman will have pain, they'll have something like even like a weird twinge, anything. You go to your physician complaining of anything with pelvic pain, anything weird, that should get a, a pelvic ultrasound, 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, some OBGYNs do pelvic ultrasounds with every annual every year. Um, some OBGYNs don't. So really any kind of pain, even if, even if it's like the most minuscule thing, you, you're like, oh, I don't even know what that is. You should go in and get checked out and an ultrasound should be ordered so that they can elucidate what's causing this pain. A hundred percent. Now, when I think back, I'm like, oh yeah, I felt a pinch here and there, but you know, I, I always think, oh, it's my IUD or I did something or, you know, but it was nothing that I would pinpoint like, oh, this is hurting me. And my followers, they see me working out every other day. They see me going out. They see me like living life. And then it was such a huge shock. And it's so funny. As I was getting into my uh, doctor's office, I was recording an Instagram story that never uploaded. But the Instagram story I was about to post, it was like, guys, just reminding you, get your checkups, like be on top of your health. And then I'm like, oh my God. I honestly, it's so funny. I I was about to post it and then um, I was leaving the doctor's office crying. So I didn't post anything at that point. So basically when somebody does uh, feel any kind of unusual pain that they should obviously go get an ultrasound and then take it from there and see what happens. Yeah. And it might not even be pain, right? It might be pressure. Like Mm -hmm. a big sense like that, you might just feel like more pressure or more fullness or just something isn't right. And you shouldn't just say, oh, it's no big deal, whatever. You definitely need to get it checked out. When we have cysts mm-hmm. in, on our ovaries on, or anywhere else in this area, what can they usually be? Is it endometriosis, PCOS? Tell us about cysts in general. So yeah, so every time you ovulate, you form a cyst, right? So eggs live inside a follicle, which essentially can become a cyst. So a typical cyst is just fluid. Uh, It's like a fluid-filled cyst. It's a simple cyst. And so really there's nothing to be concerned about. Typically they'll burst, they'll go away. Um, There's really nothing to do with them. But things like dermoids is a type of cyst, and that is a really uh, unusual cyst. I've never heard that term, dermoids. Dermoids. Yeah, you don't want to. So what that is, <laughs> yeah. they're actually very common as well, but they have every embryologic tissue. They can have every embryologic tissue in them. So you can have a cyst, it can have fat on the ovary. It can have fat, it can have teeth, it can have hair. It can Are you have, serious? I'm totally serious. It can have thyroid tissue. Yeah. Wow. It's really, yeah, they're really, really different. <gasps> Yeah. So I'm going to Google this right now as soon as we stop speaking about this. (laughs) And they're actually pretty common, believe it or not. And they can get pretty big and they can become very heavy because they're full of 
like this fat fluid. And so you're, you typically definitely have symptoms with that, like a full, that's what I was saying before, like a fullness or just a, something doesn't feel right. So there's dermoids, mm. there's simple cysts, which are completely normal. There's the cysts of PCOS, which we call them cysts, but really they're follicles where those eggs live. You can have multiple follicles. Um, and then you have things like endometriomas, which is what you had. And then there's other rare cysts that can be cancerous, typically as you get older. Um, so there's all kinds of different cysts that you can have. Let's talk about PCOS. What causes it? What is the best way to treat it or live with it? Talk to me a little bit about PCOS. Yeah, so PCOS is the most common endocrine disorder in females. We say at least one in 10 women have it, if not more, depending on the studies you look at. That's a similar number with endometriosis. Is that right? 100%. Yep, one in 10. So, and endometriosis and PCOS can kind of live together. So you can have Mm -hmm. both of the conditions. And so PCOS is really a um, hormonal issue with increased testosterone, ovulatory dysfunction, meaning you ovulate very infrequently and multiple follicles on your ovaries. And so typically a woman will come in and have cystic acne or facial hair growth or their periods are really irregular. And so that's when you have to start looking at, could this be PCOS? And so you're going to do blood work and typically you're going to do an ultrasound to get the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else we need to mention about PCOS or endometriosis? They're both chronic not horrible conditions. Um, Mm -hmm. Endometriosis causes a lot of pain, chronic pelvic pain. About 80% of women with chronic pelvic pain have endometriosis. Around 30 to 40% of women with infertility have endometriosis. So if you're struggling with infertility, you have to look and see if endometriosis could be causing it. Definitely. And so there are chronic conditions that you're not, endometriosis, you're typically not going to get rid of. It's going to be with you for the rest of your life. So you have to deal, not deal with it, but you have to learn how to manage it. The same Mm -hmm. thing with PCOS. It will never go away. Even if you're menopausal, you're going to always have PCOS. So you have to manage it the best way possible. So that's why you have to partner with a physician that you really trust and that will listen to you um, because you're going to be dealing with this for the rest of your life. Yeah, when I got diagnosed with mine, they told me the best way to get to get it under control is to take birth control pills and get pregnant. And I was like, pills it is at this point <laughs> of my life. <laughs> it's so funny, though. I want to have so many kids one day. I'm just not... Um, I, I'm, I'm sometimes very confused how my mom had two kids when she was my age. <laughs> like, God bless you. Seriously, yeah. I can barely take care of myself. Right. <laughs> but yeah. Um, we mentioned infertility. Mm-hmm. What can cause infertility? Is there some kind of, you know, can you pinpoint something besides endometriosis? So typically it's going to be an ovulatory issue with a woman. So the woman isn't ovulating. So you have mm-hmm. to figure out why the woman isn't ovulating. Is it a, you know, uh, the signals from the brain to the ovary? Is it PCOS and ovarian issue? So about, you know, we, we say 40% of the time it's a woman issue, 40% of the time it's a male issue, and 20% we don't know. So if you look at just the woman, you can have an ovulatory issue um, is typically one of the most common causes or a tubal issue. And that's where endometriosis comes in. So you can have tubes that are blocked, tubes that are closed, tubes that are scarred. So those are the two main issues in infertility in women is a ovulatory issue or a tubal issue. Okay. When somebody is experiencing infertility or maybe they're having a hard time conceiving and they want to do IVF, can you walk me through IVF? What is the process? What, I've no- what I know is that it's extremely painful, extremely expensive. So, yeah, and it's also really emotional because you're going to have to stimulate your ovaries with a lot of hormones to produce eggs. So they want to get as many eggs as they possibly can. So you're going to typically do injectable hormonal medication to stimulate your ovaries to produce eggs. And then once you produce those eggs, then you have to go in and retrieve them. So that requires a in-office surgery. 
where the reproductive endocrinologist will go vaginally and they take a needle, they go into the vagina, up into the ovaries, and they retrieve the eggs. So once they get all of the eggs, then they're going to fertilize the eggs. So that's where the male partner or if you have a sperm donor comes in. So they'll fertilize the eggs and then you can choose to do um, genetic testing on the embryos to make sure that the embryos are genetically sound. And then you're going to get your body ready for implantation of the embryos. So that, again, requires hormones. Um, you're going to implant the embryos, typically one or two. We don't implant more than that, typically. Um, and then you're going to go through all of the mental process of, am I going to get pregnant? Am I going to miscarry? So mm -hmm. it's a lot of hormones. It's a lot of uncertainty. It's painful. And it's just, it's, and it's expensive. And it, you know, it can take a lot of time and you don't even know if it's going to work. Mm -hmm. So it's a really hard process on women, I think. If somebody's going through it right now, is there something you can tell them to kind of make them feel better? Yeah, don't be too hard on yourself and give yourself um, room to breathe, I think. Um, and things will get better. So you're not going to be stuck in this place forever. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems horrible you're going through it now, everything, but it's going to get better. And cut yourself some slack. And don't, don't be too hard on yourself. Like, oh, if my, if my body, mm -hmm. if I could have done this on my own, I wouldn't have to be going through this. And no, you just go through it. You do the best you can. And, you know, you tell yourself everything's going to be okay. I got so emotional right now. It's crazy. <laughs> like I'm, I'm like I'm super close to crying. Um, I'm gonna ask you one last question. Okay. Female libido. <laughs> <laughs> why would why do some women want to have sex all the time? Some women don't want to have sex ever. Is there something that can impact our libido? Talk to me about libido. Yeah. Yeah. Libido so. Time. Yeah, so a lot of times if you're on birth control, so combined oral contraceptive pills, that can decrease your libido because it's making, you're not ovulating because a lot of women, they'll talk about, oh, I feel like having intercourse like right after I ovulate or right before I ovulate or certain times of the month. It really has to do with hormones, essentially. And so a lot of times if you're on oral contraceptive pills, that will decrease your libido because it's lowering your estrogen, it's lowering your progesterone. So that's very, very common. And also, as you age, that will lower your libido. When you go through menopause, your estrogen is low, so you're not going to have those desires as you do when you're 20. So a lot of it has to do with hormonal, and I think some of it sometimes has to do with, um, like, how you're feeling at the time, because mm -hmm. sometimes you're feeling like, oh, I feel gross, I feel whatever, and mm -hmm. you're just not in the mood. But I would say the majority of time, it's a hormonal issue, um, with birth control pills or aging, mm -hmm. things like that. Actually, I do have one more question uh, since we're talking about libido. Orgasms, vaginal and how do you even say this? Clitoral? Clitoral, yeah. <laughs> Clitoral. I, my, my immigrant uh, language comes out sometimes. Um, why do some women experience both? Some women experience none, which we yeah. are going to change. Hopefully, like you should always uh, orgasm in your life. I, I, I posted a poll at some point. I asked women how often they orgasm with their partner and like 30% said they never do. That's, I was like, that's, that's, that's horrible. So, wow. and also G spot. Can you like walk us through three, the, these three terms that I just shared? Yeah, so typically if you have a vaginal orgasm, that's going to be because of the G-spot. So it's a G-spot mm -hmm. kind of stimulation, and it's right if you go in and up. So vaginally, if you're, I guess on yourself, if you go in and then directly up kind of behind the pubic bone, that's where the notorious G-spot is. They mm -hmm. actually do, you go to some... Um, OBGYNs, urogynecologists, they'll actually inject the G-spot so you can feel it. Yeah. Inject it how? Yeah, like inject it with a material in there to make it bigger so you can actually feel it. And then it stays bigger the whole time? It will eventually, your body will reabsorb what they put in there, but you'll be able to know where it's at, essentially. Interesting. Yeah. So they call it a G-spot enhancer or something like that. I've never done it personally, but I do have colleagues that will do it. 
So then you can kind of see where it's at. So that's where it's located. If it's a vaginal orgasm, that's typically a G spot and it's hard to reach. So that's mm. kind of where women have a problem. And most women do not orgasm vaginally at all. Um, clitoral orgasms are very common if you're doing it correctly. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's enough said. Like if, if you're doing it correctly, I mean, yeah. I mean, um, however, however that happens, a vibrator, uh, yeah. and whatever, um, that's pretty common. Um, sometimes it's not like as you age, sometimes clitoral orgasms are a little bit harder to achieve. Mm -hmm. Um, but Literal orgasms, honestly, should be 95% of the time. I don't understand your poll of 30%. Mm -hmm. That's just actually yeah. kind of sad. It's sad. And I feel like a lot of women today are not telling their partner that they didn't have an orgasm because they don't want to hurt their feelings. Right. And I think that's the biggest self-sabotage situation that you're you're doing a disservice to yourself, to your partner, because they think they're doing something right because you're right. over there moaning and, right. you know, pretending like life is amazing. Meanwhile, yeah. you're like upset and then you might end up breaking up because of his inability to make you calm. But at the same right. time, you didn't tell him that he's not doing a good job. So it's... yeah. It's, yeah, I think cool. we should be much more open about these things. No, I think so. And I think if you, sometimes guys don't know what they have to do, right? So mm -hmm. show them. Yeah. <laughs> like you, I mean, you should be able to masturbate yourself, right? So then you mm -hmm. can show him and be like, okay, look, this is what needs to Makes, happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that poll is really, really sad. Yeah, we, I, after that, I did a collab with, um, a sex toy company so i was yeah. giving away yeah. vibrators to everyone you no know, honestly that's yeah. the best thing to do is like get a vibrator and say look this is what has to happen yeah yeah so, and yeah. it was also I, i forget what was the percentages of what was the percentage of women saying that they never like masturbate and i was like what are you doing in your free time like i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah crazy uh Yeah. Dr. Stacy, this was so much fun. And I feel like I can talk to you for like another few hours, but yeah. I'm going to be mindful of your time. And um, I also, we didn't even get the chance to speak about Alara Health, which you're a part of. So can you please share a little bit about Alara and what you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. So Alara is the first telemedicine platform for women's health. So we treat PCOS, we treat any kind of hormonal imbalance, we treat endometriosis, menopause, thyroid issues, metabolic syndrome, any kind of chronic metabolic hormonal disorder in women. And so um, we partner with dietitians and obviously medical providers. So you'll get a doctor plus a dietitian and we basically take care of everything. So we'll, we can diagnose you, we can treat you. Um, and it's actually nice because you don't ever have to leave your home. And how does one uh, reach out to Alara or does it, is it covered by insurance or how does somebody, if somebody has some kind of issues, how can they yep. contact Alara? Yeah, absolutely. So if you go on our website, alara.com, we just revamped our website there. You can sign up for a free 15 minute consult. And so we'll walk you through the entire program. We do take insurance in certain states. And then we have three month and six month subscriptions where you can use your health savings account, your FSA. So you can use all of that. Um, but we are on a lot of insurance plans. So if you just go on our website, There'll be information on how to sign up for a free 15-minute consult, and then you can get all the information and go from there. Well, uh, Dr. Stacy, as I said, this was wonderful, and I learned so much, and I hope our listeners did too. And if you can share where can people find you, how can they contact you, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So you can go to alarahealth.com. And you will have all of our information and you can sign up for the free 15-minute consult. And I see patients in around 10 states, but all of our providers are excellent and will take really great care of you. Awesome. Well, thanks everybody for listening and I'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Thank you.